We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Dimitri Budas of the China Post. Hi, good evening. And on the telephone by regular Kaohsiung-based commentator, Michael Smith. Hey there, everybody. Thanks for having me. Tonight, we'll be discussing the DPP's National Congress, at which constitutional amendments and the Kaohsiung mayoral by-election loomed large, an English university city passing a motion aimed at establishing a sister city agreement with Taiwan, plans to allocate funds for the development or procurement of a coronavirus vaccine, more foreign students being allowed to return to the island, a remote Taipei-Shanghai Twin City Forum, mothballs and very nice policemen. But we'll begin with lawmakers passing the Citizen Judges Act on Wednesday of this week, with President Tsai Ing-wen applauding its passage and saying that it marks the beginning of an era in which citizens will take part in judicial proceedings via a joint trial, joint verdict mechanism. Now, lawmakers passed the 113 article following over 30 hours of screening and voting that lasted three days. And writing on her Facebook page, the President said the bill will allay concerns about the fairness of verdicts that jeopardise the credibility of the judiciary and incorporates the advantages of the jury system in the US and the UK and the lay judge system in Germany. Under the article, criminal trials at district courts that involve offences subject to a minimum of 10 years in prison will involve a panel of judges made up of three professional judges and six citizen judges. Citizen judges have to be at least 23 years old, have graduated from high school or the equivalent thereof, and have lived in the area under the jurisdiction of the district court for a minimum of four months. Those with a criminal record cannot serve as citizen judges or stand by citizen judges for obvious reasons. And the President and Vice President on-duty military service personnel, police officers, certified law officers and lawyers are also exempted from serving under the new Act. Now, it's estimated that more than 500 criminal cases on average each year will involve trials under the new Joint Trial, Joint Ruling System and Citizen Judges. Now, the Citizen Judges Act is scheduled to take effect on January the 1st of 2023. So, Michael, Citizen Judges, the public having a say in how people are sentenced... Well, I was uh, looking at the, uh, the the new laws that had just been passed, and I was trying to remember where I had seen this before, and then it dawned on me that, that this is pretty much a direct, um, I don't want to say copy, but a direct uh, 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 imitation, perhaps, of the Japanese system that was passed in 2009, where there are um, exactly the same number. There's a, a panel of three professional judges, and there are six of, is that what it is in Taiwan as well? Six and three? Yep. In any case, Japan passed exactly, pretty much exactly the same thing back in 2009. And for the most part, it seems to be going quite well. And I'm quite happy that they're finally allowing uh, the public to be able to get in on this. It's not the jury system that we have in some of our western states, and it's also not the same as the ones in uh, France or Germany. Those people have set terms, whereas these ones will be individual cases and will be picked at random rather than uh, recommended or appointed. Now, the only concerns that I have is that uh, if you talk to an average Taiwanese person frequently about criminal cases that involve scandalous things, uh, you might hear a lot of, like, out-for-blood attitudes or a lot of, um, you know, they should be locked up forever or they should be guillotined or whatever else. And I'm a little concerned that perhaps this will affect some of the outcomes because we're not that advanced, possibly, when it comes to attitudes related to mental illness or addiction. And sometimes rulings are unpopular. They have to be unpopular, and that's the job of a, of a judge. So I'm hoping that uh, the, the society in general will be able to, <laughs> sorry, to mature into these roles. The other issue is time. 
Um, many cases in Japan have had issues with the lay judges not having enough time, so they've sped up the court uh, decisions, and that has resulted in some issues. So overall, I'm enthusiastic about it, but there are some concerns. Well, I have I have pretty much the same concerns. Uh, well, everybody has an opinion in Taiwan, and you can see that throughout the day, all these talk shows. But in the end, most you will see that actually nobody they can't even agree on anything in the end. Yeah. So when it comes to um, judges, uh, my concern is that. Uh, I, I, I mean, arguing endlessly at the court, it's not going to solve the problems we have. Uh, another concern I have is like for campaigns like the abolition of death penalty in Taiwan. Uh, it's going to be even more difficult for uh, advocates um, to push for changes uh, to these policies because maybe uh, at first I think they try to reach to government authorities, judges, but now they need to convince a larger pool of people that maybe Taiwan could consider in the future to um, move forward with uh, the, the death penalty. So, well, yes. Um, another concern maybe is that, again, we just copy and paste legislations from other countries, which is very common in Taiwan. But what is maybe works maybe in Japan or in Germany or France, maybe doesn't might not work in Taiwan. So... Uh, it's a bit early to well to say whether it's going to work or not, but well, I'm I'm pretty much concerned right now. And Michael, of course, they, they the KMT was calling for either the jury system or a, a sort of a, an amalgamation of the jury system and the citizen judge system. Right, and uh, you can see why perhaps uh, uh, political parties or uh, commentators have have concerns because. Okay, for number one, if you have three judges that are deciding a, a fate, it's, it's relatively easy, at least in my opinion, to find a way possibly to, to either bribe or influence three individuals. So that's one problem. The other problem is uh, if you did bring in juries, they have almost, there is no culture of that in Taiwan. So you, you'd be bring, in, introducing a, a pretty foreign concept. And it would, it would just be quite a steep learning curve for a jury of 12 random individuals to, to understand that they have to be impartial, they have to sit there and listen to all the facts, they have to, if they have any doubt whatsoever in their mind. So these are concepts that have been put into certain Western countries for, I guess, in some cases, literally a century or more. So they've gotten used to these ideas, and juries in many places have returned very unpopular verdicts because they just felt that the prosecution hasn't managed to prove their case, or, uh, or sometimes they've uh, convicted people uh, based on, against what popular opinion would be. And, uh, yeah, so you can understand why uh, political parties, the KMT, was trying to, to go for some sort of middle way, but it seems like this is really the only system that I can think of right now that we could at least experiment with for, for the interim period as possibly this is a step towards an eventual jury system. And Dimitri, Michael, they're talking about problems with jury systems here. Do you agree? Well, I kind of agree. I, I can imagine maybe some judges uh, leaving the, the, the court and making comments to the media or having the media waiting at the door mm. just to get comments. Um, well, this is, well, right, this is, we've seen so many of these uh, in Taiwan already, so, well, we need to, well, the government will need to, I mean, authorities are going to need to come up with a very clear uh, plan to uh, implement uh, such program and then maybe adjust in the future if things actually don't work. Agreed. 
And of course, Michael, the time frame, like you mentioned the time frame that these cases could take. I mean, the public might find that a bit off-putting. While it might be a bit of a giggle to be a citizen judge, it might not be a bit of a giggle if you have to take like three weeks and one month off work. Right. I mean, uh, when you get called for jury duty, at least in the United States, you know, it's a running joke that people find their best excuse to, to get out of it because it's not something you really want to do if you can possibly avoid it. It takes... Some for some cases, uh, weeks and even months, and then there are mistrials and it just. So yeah, I am concerned also that uh, people will discover that a serious uh, trial, let's say a murder or something of you know in Taiwan they're doing something that over ten years in prison. So these are serious crimes for the most part. Uh, they will discover that this is going to take a big chunk out of their. Uh, schedule, and uh, that was one of the issues that some of the Japanese lawyers that I uh, was reading into had mentioned, that uh, trials were being shortened, even death penalty trials were being shortened uh, because of the uh, fact that the the, juror, the lay judges were just not uh, able to, to handle such a, a long case load. Now, the, the good thing that uh, they mentioned in Japan was that the incidences or perceived instances of Japanese police perhaps bullying suspects uh, during interrogation because uh, they're all videotaped, that seems to have gone down a bit because now these lay judges are watching all of these videos and you know that it's not just uh, a couple of judges, that there's going to be plenty of people watching these interrogations. So that seems to be uh, one thing in its favor. Well, yes, uh, more openness, uh, maybe... Uh, well, at one point, maybe bringing some of the media in some public trials to make people understand how the justice system works. And that maybe that's what is lacking. Uh, there is a funny thing in, uh, in France, for example, because um, French people like to watch uh, soap operas from the United States. So they keep calling the judge your honor. Right. Because that's how you address the prop a judge in the United States. In France is Mr. or Mrs. the president the president of the of the of the court. So uh maybe the Taiwanese people need more time to learn and well we we learn also by doing mistakes, so well we will see. And moving on, the DPP held its 19th National Congress in Taipei last Sunday, and President Tsai Ing-wen, who doubles as party chairwoman, talked up the party's need to make its own constitutional amendment proposals, at which lowering the voting age to 18, and also abolishing the control UN and examination UN were its top priorities. Tsai also called on the DPP to unite behind Chen Chi Mai and help him win the August 15th Kaohsiung mayoral by-election, and she said one of the party's most important missions in the short term is to win that by-election, and she's now urging the DPP to win the mayoral seat and to bring back, in her words, the glory of Kaohsiung. And she added, although Chen's losing the 2018 Kaohsiung mayoral election to Han Guoyu was a setback in his political career, she went on to say that Chen has since performed well as vice premier and bounced back. Now, former President Chen Shui-bian was in attendance at Sunday's DPP National Congress, but he cast his ballots for central standing committee members before leaving the venue without making any public comment. Of course, he's still on medical parole. And the Taichung prison did say that it's going to examine his behaviour during the National Congress before deciding whether he violated the terms of said medical parole. So, Dimitri, the constitutional reform and the Kaohsiung mayoral by-election big at the DPP National Congress. And let's start with the constitutional reforms. Of course, she talked up lowering the voting age from the current 20 to 18 and also the abolition of the control UN and examination UN, making them top priorities for the DPP in the coming months, if not years. 
Well, these have been top priorities for the DPP for years, actually, because the president has a strong mandate to lead Taiwan over the next four years. But constitutional reform, uh, abolishing the control UN, it's not going something that is going to impact uh, uh, most people's uh, life on a daily basis. Uh, prior, just one year ago, if you remember, um, uh, sorry, almost two years now, uh, the, during the, the 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 city the city election, uh, the DPP was reminded that they should pay more attention to uh, how the economy is impacting the daily life of the of the local people not just people that live in taipei city but it's people who live in the countryside young people young graduates who just can't make a decent living with uh low income low opportunities and maybe uh who are really concerned we're faced with only one option staying in taiwan and uh live on a very uh, low income or maybe move abroad or going to china so where it's great, the the, the ruling DP, the DPP won uh, a second term. So well, is do we need all this constitution reform, and how is it going to impact your daily life? I think that is something also the DPP needs to take into account. Uh, more reforms that's gonna maybe uh, without the help of the KMT, obviously, it's gonna be maybe more. Uh, confrontations at the legislative UN. We can expect also more confrontation or tense cross-trace relations or relations with Hong Kong. Well, the COVID-19 crisis is not over yet. So, well, I think we some people and maybe a lo- lo- especially young graduates might be really concerned about what's happening for them for the next three years. Now, if the only thing we can tell them that we're going to change the constitution, well, I'm not sure if it's going to be enough. And of course, Michael, big talk of Kaohsiung. Right. Uh, and just before that, let me jump in a little bit with the constitutional thing. Uh, previously, every time that this was mentioned, it raised eyebrows and pretty much all over the world, even in, in the United States, because it, there were concerns that if you're going to amend the Constitution, then you would have a chance of perhaps amending the, the name or, uh, you know, perhaps leading to independence. But uh, it seems that Thai, President Tsai has allayed most of those concerns by laying out a very clear plan of what she wants. There are five branches of government, I believe, in Taiwan. She wants to uh, streamline that. She wants to lower the voting age to 18. Taiwan is one of the only countries in the world uh, that I'm aware of that uh, hasn't uh, gotten to that uh, level yet. So these are pretty clear things that need to be done. Now, in my city of Kaohsiung, we have 38 districts spread out over the place. Some of them are tiny. You could walk across it in five seconds, and then some are huge. Just there's a lot of streamlining in government in Taiwan that needs to be done. So that's going to be uh, something that I think will be good for Taiwan overall, and the voting age is also going to be a a good move overall. Um, Kaohsiung, she's very clear. She wants uh, Chen Shimai to win. She wants to take back the stronghold of Kaohsiung. And as things are going right now, especially with the most recent uh, controversy over uh, plagiarism from the KMT candidate uh, Jane Lee or Lee, Lee, Lee Meizhen, she uh, is not doing well at all, and it doesn't look like she has uh, any chance whatsoever of uh, holding the seat for the KMT. So if they stick together and they fight uh, this battle uh, as they are right now, it looks like uh, very clearly that the DPP will retake Kaohsiung. Well, yes. Uh, we've, we've, well, but again, we can see this this uh, this election turns ugly one more time, and uh, we we've seen we saw these uh, the figures, the latest polls in, in in recent days and weeks, and we we pretty much we knew the trend pretty much and where we were going on this. But 
this new issue about plagiarism and I think it having it right now with what some people said about even the president's uh, PhD thesis uh, one year ago. Uh, I think the president was uh, back then smart. It didn't go into uh, too much comments on that specific issue. But from the from the the Kaohsiung race one, I don't know if it was a, like an urgent issue to bring such topic right now. And when we come to when you, you, we mentioned plagiarism, it's something very common in Taiwan. But yes. even at the at the government level, when you mention this le new legislation, it's copy and paste from the legislating in Japan. It's the same with many legislation in Taiwan. It's not just students facing or like, struggling to writing their thesis uh, at all level of government you can see people like borrowing paragraph sentences proposals and making them theirs so that's the mentality that maybe needs to change too I, I'm, I'm not sure if i completely agree though i do think it's a big deal because we're hearing from students in Zhongshan uh, University and all over Kaohsiung, and they feel that the KMT just gave us a candidate in Han Guoyu who was, according to many down here, a liar and a person who went back on promises. And now they've put forward a candidate who is has, has, has confessed, essentially, to uh, not just the minor copying and pasting, but 96% of her thesis being just wholesale copied from another person. Now, it's, it's almost... It strikes me as arrogant, the fact that she thought that she could get away with running for office and this wouldn't come up in an election. Um, you know, the Internet is a pretty easy thing to run a thesis through, and there was plenty of people who were scrutinizing her background. And she, she, you know, she did a cry and an apology yesterday, and there were comments today from Chen Shimai about uh, how it, easy it would be for them to investigate the professor who granted the degree. He said it would take three minutes to figure this out, like how this happened, and uh, perhaps if we need to discipline someone. And he doesn't see why it should take three weeks. And there's a lot of, from what I'm hearing in Gaussian, there's a lot of people who agree. And they just see this as, like, ridiculous, like one more step. First you gave us this, now you give us this. What is it with you folks? Can't you get your act together? So this, uh, to, to many people, has a, it just rings of yet another attempt to, be, to, to trick people. And it's not going down well here from, from the majority of people that I'm talking to. Right, and talking about something completely different, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week extended its thanks to the Oxford City Council in England for passing a motion aimed at establishing a sister city or twinning agreement with a city here in Taiwan. Now, Tainan Mayor Huang Weijie, as well as the Taichung and Shenzhou city governments, all quickly jumped up and said, hey, we were interested in signing agreement with the English university city. Now, the motion actually passed by the Oxford City Council called on the British Cabinet under UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson to explore the possibility of negotiating a twinning agreement with an appropriate municipality on the island of Taiwan. It also requested that the British government write to the Taipei representative office in the UK to formally request its assistance in arranging for the establishment of said sister city or twinning agreement. Now, Dimitri, of course, this motion was introduced by Oxford City Councillor Stephen Goddard. And apparently you had a chat with the chap. Yep, I got a chat with him on on Wednesday, and uh, we went through the proposal, and we we asked him why now, why would you recommend such twinning agreement at the time? And he was telling us about uh, how Oxford is like a city of diversity, tolerance, and great democratic tradition, and he thinks that Taiwan is very clear, a very clear example of values along exactly those lines in East Asia. Um, we. Um, 
Strange. We also asked him about uh, the potential cities that would be selected to sign such an agreement. And he also told us, that was interesting, that he told us that in addition to uh, Xinshu and Taichung and Tainan, he told us that some people from uh, Tanshui uh, uh, in uh, New Taipei actually contacted him as well. Uh, you know that there is a Tanshui University, uh, uh, Tamkang, sorry, Tamkang University in Tanshui. And, uh, well, maybe some people people in the new Taipei also saw maybe an opportunity in signing such an agreement. Uh, we also asked him about uh, how would China potentially react to signing such an agreement? Because when you sign an agreement, you have also to mention which countries they are part from. Now, we believe that the Oxford University has agreements or maybe uh, exchange programs with universities in uh, China, and part of this agreement, as the Dr. Goddard is also a lecturer at, uh, at Oxford University, he was telling us that maybe it's a chance not only to sign an agreement between cities, but also to bring two universities together. So maybe how is it going to impact uh, potential relations with China? And on this, he wasn't that clear, and he wasn't actually that sure how me potentially uh, China would react. Well, I believe that China is going to react. China would always and always makes a point in when it comes to cross-trade relation, the one-China principle. So, well, I don't think it's going to uh, be that smooth. It might take a couple of weeks. Uh, we might have also more cities now jumping on the on the, uh, the bandwagon and just trying to also design such an agreement. So uh, the timeline might extend for a couple of months. Uh, we have also... Um, the uh, the consular also told us that he was looking forward potentially to visit Taiwan. So uh, we looking into maybe a couple of months, maybe a year uh, before such an agreement can be signed. And but well, we can also expect a strong maybe some reactions from China first. And of course, Michael, this sister city agreement with Oxford, it seems to be getting a bit more press because of course Taiwan does have sister city agreements with cities in the U.S. Yeah, plenty of them. If you go on Wikipedia and look up uh, Sister City Taiwan, you can find a very, very long list, uh, and there's some surprises in there as well. Um, yeah, I'm I'm happy that uh, more international people, more international cities, uh, organizations are interested in doing any connections to Taiwan. That's always, you know, at least in my opinion, that's a, a good thing. And I would just remind Oxford that we also have a university down here in Kaohsiung, so that's that. Unfortunately, there's a problem with that, isn't there? Because there was a bit of plagiarism, as we talked about <laughs> 10 minutes ago. Yes, yes. There. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and we haven't covered the coronavirus issue in several weeks, but there were several virus-related issues this week, as Taiwan continued to have no domestic infections for 103 days as of the time we're recording this show, that despite a handful of new imported cases over the past week. Now, those cases were reported in Taiwanese nationals returning from the Philippines and Hong Kong. Meanwhile, the government announced that it's set to allocate 18.7 billion NT for the development or procurement of a coronavirus vaccine 
vaccine. And officials say 13.5 billion NT of that will be spent on research and development here in Taiwan or on the procurement of said vaccine from an overseas source, while 5.2 billion NT will be held as a reserve fund. Now, three local companies have so far applied for permission to carry out human trials of coronavirus vaccines, and the government has said that it's willing to issue emergency use authorizations to streamline the approval process for high-potential vaccine candidates. Now, the statements come after several drug developers here in Taiwan had been warning that the island is lagging behind in the race to develop a coronavirus vaccine because of what they ch- called to be excessive regulatory requirements. Now, the Ministry of Education this week also reopened Taiwan's borders to all final-year foreign students, with ministry officials saying that the lifting of the entry ban applies to all foreign foreign students in their final year, including those from China, and they'll be allowed to complete their studies here in Taiwan when they return. However, they are still required to remain in quarantine for 14 days on their arrival, and their schools are being asked to make advanced arrangements for the students to be quarantined on their arrival, like I said, either in dormitories, at a hotel, or a designated quarantine facility. Now, the island's borders were, of course, closed to most foreign nationals on March the 19th, but regulations were slightly relaxed on June the 17th to allow the return of final-year students from 19 countries and territories, which were classified as low-risk or low-to-moderate risk for the coronavirus. Now, according to the Ministry of Education, there are some 3,533 final-year international students, including 3,041 of them from China, waiting to return to Taiwan. Now, foreign visitors seeking medical care are also going to be allowed to enter Taiwan once again, but only if they meet certain requirements, and that begins on August the 1st called medical tourism. Anyway, the opening will apply to foreign patients seeking treatment in all areas of health care except physical health checkups and cosmetic surgery. And all foreign nationals wishing to visit Taiwan for said medical purposes will have to present proof of a negative coronavirus test taken within three days of boarding their flight and also be required to self-quarantine for 14 days on their arrival. There's also a clause that says visitors will also have to show proof of at least 30,000 US dollars in financial resources or health insurance for coverage of that amount or over for their period in Taiwan. Now, apparently, some 380,000 foreign nationals visited the island for medical treatment last year, but, of course, that programme was suspended due to the coronavirus pandemic. So, Dimitri, we've talked about students returning before, and you've always concerned that Chinese students were not being considered for their return, but apparently 3,041 of them can now return to Taiwan to finish their studies. Well, that's good news, but it also shows that, well, universities uh, hope to bring more people in, and uh, we've seen a continued decrease in the number of students in Taiwan, uh, university students in recent years, so they need those students, they need those students to support their operations. Now, this is not the only an issue in Taiwan. Uh, we had the, there is the same issue in the United States where uh, the central government was actually concerned that a lot of students would take their classes online. So there was an e- visa, a visa issue in, uh, in, uh, in recent days. So, well, for back to Taiwan, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great news. And we hope that maybe more students and maybe also um, foreigners uh, medic- looking for medical tourism, yes, would potentially come back to Taiwan. But Taiwan is not the only uh, country opening its borders. I think Thailand is also considering the same, the same measures. Also, Japan is uh, f- facing the same issue. So, well, again, well, well time will see. And Michael, do you think re- returning students will cause some concern? Because, of course, 3,041 of them are from China. 
I personally think that the the government has demonstrated so far pretty clearly that this 14-day isolation thing is working. Um, I saw a report today that said quarantine hotels are uh, expected to get up to about 90% occupancy within a month or so. Some of them in Taipei are at 70% right now, whereas last month it was about 55%. So from what I can tell, most people in Taiwan are, are pretty pretty content with the, the idea of coming back, doing the two-week thing. I'm also uh, I'm in agreement with Dimitri about uh, the uh, medical tourists. I don't personally think we're going to see a huge spike in that because uh, I just don't imagine most people wanting to travel at this point. And if you were going to do that and travel, you know, perhaps halfway around the world for something, you probably would pick somewhere else that uh, has a more established industry. Uh, Thailand would be one example. So I don't really have that many concerns about it, and it's nice to be seeing things move at least slightly back to normal. And, Michael, what about the, the coronavirus vaccine? Because, of course, today there was news breaking that China had offered Caribbean and South and Central American countries large amounts of monies in loans to buy their coronavirus vaccine. Well, it's a global race, right? Everyone is uh, doing their best to be the first. We've got news from the U.K. that they have something in, in the pipeline. We've got uh, five or six various ones in the U.S. that are... Uh, moving into various stages of trial. I'd be very interested to know what would happen if China were to actually claim to successfully have a vaccine. How would Taiwan react to that? Would we be willing to uh, take their word for it? Would we, would we take the vaccine? Um, so there's obviously a bit of politics in here. But, um, of course, if Taiwan can come up with a vaccine that uh, is uh, helpful and uh, useful and they can do it before China, that would be a, a nice little coup. And, Dimitri, of course, like I said, China's loans to Central, South American and Caribbean countries where Taiwan has most of its diplomatic allies. Do you think they could use this as leverage against Taiwan? Well, but as you mentioned, it's, it's a race. But uh, developing a vaccine is one thing. Marketing that vac vaccine is another issue. And uh, Taiwan, Taiwan itself is a very small market. So you need to have the pharmaceut pharmaceutical industry behind those uh, research centers to market your vaccine afterwards. So the cost of developing a vaccine and then doing the trials and all the research in Taiwan actually might be slightly higher than in other countries. So that's maybe the, the only the, 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 the simple reason is that because Taiwan market is too small and uh, to develop such a market, to develop a, such a, an international a vaccine for the international market, you might actually need more resources. And for that, China has not only the market, but the research centers. Although Taiwan would have the trust levels, I'm guessing, uh, compared to China. If you were from, you know, I don't know, Thailand or uh, Southeast Asia and you heard that there was a Taiwanese-developed vaccine versus a Chinese-developed vaccine, I would probably bet most people would want to go for the Taiwan-developed one. Well, given the situation right now, I think uh, we all... All, all countries and agencies will double check whatever information or Definitely. whatever Definitely. Uh, they get on that vaccine. So in the end, whether it's a vaccine developed in China but co-developed in the with a university in the UK or in the US, in the end, uh, we shouldn't be also uh, afraid of just because we hear China, we're just gonna not gonna take that vaccine. That vaccine that would be also equally silly.
And in completely different news, but involving China, the annual Taipei Shanghai Twin City Forum took place remotely on Wednesday of this week. Now, the event, the event rather, was held using the Cisco video conferencing system. That's simply because Google is not accessible in China, and both the central and local government agencies here in Taiwan were there banned from using Huawei systems. Now, in his opening remarks to the conference, Taipei Mayor Ke Wenzhe touted what he called his pragmatic approach to cross-strait ties, and he proposed five mutual principles to guide that relationship, those being being the need for the two sides to meet, understand, respect, cooperate and have forbearance with each other. He also criticised the Tsai administration for what he claimed to be its pursuit of anti-China sentiment, that despite the two sides continuing to have close commercial ties. Now, for his part, Shanghai Mayor Gong Zheng praised Taiwan, Taipei rather's success in its handling of the coronavirus pandemic and, predictably enough, talked up the two sides of the Taiwan Strait being as one family. Now, issues discussed at the forum focused on healthcare and medicine industrial and economic exchanges, regional governments and cooperation, and also smart transportation. So, Michael, of course, the, the Shanghai mayor praising Taipei's success in its handling of the coronavirus, rather than, of course, it was the central government that handled the coronavirus success. Yeah, another one of those uh, Chinese Taipei uh, kind of issues that uh, doesn't go down well uh, for much of the rest of the island. Um, but um, um, in, in, in the end... I'm sure most of us would agree that we do need to have some communication with uh, with our neighbor on the other side of the, the strait. It's just we must have some sort of dialogue, otherwise it's, there's there's no hope whatsoever for anything. So it's good that they're talking. And the thing that uh, hits me, uh, it's kind of unrelated to the topics that they're discussing, but COVID is again proving that there's no need for these massive, expensive conferences where people fly to different places and we waste all this money. This uh, uh, digital conference seems to be a very successful way of doing things. And I hope that going forward, we use more of these sort of systems instead of uh, the wasteful of ones we've been doing in the past. So, Dimitri, Coenger's pragmatic approach to cross-strait ties was on video this year. Well, that was that was well, that was still a very important meeting because we need to see Ke Wenzhi, uh, for the preparing the ground for his a bit for the presidential election uh, next time in 2024. So it was important for him to use that that platform and that twin city agreement between Shanghai and Taipei to promote its policies and to show that cross-straits relation at the city level are not meant to be a zero-sum game. We can gain from this interaction in many different ways. Shanghai can gain and Taipei can as well. So we can see now maybe the, the mayor uh, slowly preparing, pushing for his policy platform. And he's going to use that platform over the next three to four years to push forward his presidential bid. So, and we can see also the contradiction now with the ruling party, and we can see that uh, they're going in totally different directions. So that's one thing that was very interesting, a very interesting form. Uh, the DVP hasn't come, didn't comment that much on that on that specific forum, but we can see we will see that they will build. Also, the ruling party will prepare, and we can see uh, they're heading uh, head to head, and we can see the confrontation uh, going forward also in the next few weeks and months. Yeah. Yeah, Han Guoyu, when he was mayor of Kaohsiung, he also suggested that they uh, do a Kaohsiung-Shanghai forum, as I recall. Uh, but it seems very unlikely, I agree with Dimitri, that uh, any DPP administration in any other major city of Taiwan would consider doing such a thing. So, yes, there, there's a, a, a clear line between the two parties there, or the three parties at least. 
Right, moving away from serious news this week, or partly serious news, because those small balls of chemical pesticide and deodorant known as mothballs made the news here last week and again this week, as the government announced that it's looking to reduce their use at public facilities. Of course, when you smell mothballs, you are in fact inhaling insecticides, and that hasn't gone unnoticed, as a petition launched in April urging an end to the use of mothballs was submitted to the Cabinet last week, and that showed wide public support for such a ban. Now, organisers of the said petition say they hope the government will stop using them in all public facilities within one year and ban the production, import, sale and use of mothballs within the next five years. Now, if you're interested, mothballs have in fact been banned in New Zealand, while some mothballs containing certain chemicals are banned in the European Union. So, Michael, mothballs, do you have them in your cupboard? Um, I have relatives that believe that mothballs are an effective deterrent to cockroaches. So, unfortunately, they are spread all over my house. And uh, they cause me somewhat uh, discomfort. So I've asked them to be removed, (laughs) and we've uh, cleared our house of them. I personally hate them, and I would be happy to see them banned. Mothballs. Michael doesn't like them. Dimitri, do you like mothballs? <laughs> well, I, nobody likes them. Uh, nobody likes the smell, but they p- work pretty much, pretty well. So uh, the very reason why maybe I bought some of them a long time ago, it was also because of insects and cockroaches in our in our building. Uh <sighs> I'm I'm surprised it's just another of these uh, top government priorities right now. Uh, there are a lot of things going on around the mothballs. I don't know. I understand why it's such a top priority. It's it's a funny news. Maybe it was funny in the news. That's maybe the run the the reason why we kept mentioning this this week. Well, it, it it was a petition, right? Taiwan law says that if you get a certain number of signatures, then the government is required to respond to the petition, right? There's been petitions on everything from marijuana to uh, old cars, and the government has to respond. If if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it does. And they responded to mothballs. Because when you go to public places, there is an abundance of mothballs. You go to the local health centre, it does reek a bit in certain parts of it, Michael. Yeah, um, I think we've gone a little bit overboard. Maybe, maybe, maybe they're not. Maybe we don't need to ban them completely. But um, uh, yeah, at least in my house, they they went way overboard. You've been you've been banned them in your house. You should That's write. Right. You should write to the government and tell them you've banned them so they can executive them. order. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Anyway, before we go this week, um, police in Taipei, well, this made international news. This was this week's international news about Taiwan, and it, con- it concerned a, Ninten- a Nintendo, I'll say that again, a Nintendo Switch console, which apparently the owner, well, he left in a toilet, apparently, which, you know, he, he, I hope the police were using gloves when they picked it up. Anyway, and the police decided they needed to track down the owner because, of course, it had no name on it, and they actually took to using the game Animal Crossing New Horizons to track down the owner. They went into the game, they turned the console on, rather, and they apparently went into the game and sent messages to the console owner's friends who then contacted the console owner and said... The police station in Taipei's Dian district has your console that you left in a toilet. I'm sure the friends thought that was absolutely hilarious. But, of course, Dimitri, the police in Taipei, this is good news. They're not beating innocent people up on the street like police departments in some countries are getting a rather warranted bad rap for at the moment. Well, maybe maybe they don't do it at the same time, but we would say that that was also another piece of interesting news this week, and we think that well, I think it was a, it was pretty smart. I maybe wouldn't have thought of that. I'm not a I don't know much about Twitch, but the idea of using uh, the the game or game or social media to find the owner, I think the owner was super th- was thrilled and happy to get his Switch back. His Switch back, which I think it's pretty hard to buy right now in Taiwan.
Michael, of course, it shows that the police here are a bit tech-savvy. Uh, sure, yeah. And, and in, in general, though, it's just another one of those PR coups. And this happens, you know, every couple of months. Uh, a tourist will forget their wallet or somebody will leave something somewhere and then they'll publicize it. And, it'll, and you know, it, you, you could see it as kind of corny or cheesy or whatever, but it, it is quite nice to live in a country where the police might do something as, as, as kind as go online and actually search for the owner of something or return wallets and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm happy that uh, I live in a place, as you noted, where the cops are using technology or using kindness to help people recover lost things instead of perhaps uh, slapping people over the head. I do wish that, at least in my city, they would put a little bit more effort into controlling the, uh, the, the driving and the traffic situation, but um, I'm happy to know if I lose my phone or my uh, switch or whatever it is, I might get it back. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week. This week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Dimitri Buyas. Well, it's good to be here. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.